You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. All right, I'm going to have you play an imaginary game with me to start the sermon this week. All right, you ready? I want you to imagine for a moment that this week you are going on a blind date. Now, okay, I get it. There's a lot of complications here. That, that, like, be, just play along, all right? You're going on a blind date. Everyone, everyone here is single. You're just, we'll, we'll figure it out. You're going on a blind date this week. So you're getting all excited. Someone just set you up with this amazing person. Well, the first thing you obviously do is make sure you check their social media, right? See, how, see what they're about. Maybe make sure you know what they look like. So when you show up to the coffee shop where you're supposed to meet them, you won't be awkwardly standing there looking around for the person that you're on this blind date with. Now you put on your best clothes. You, you show up and you go to the coffee shop. You walk in. You find the person that looks like from their Facebook profile picture that was updated like 10 years ago. You shake hands if we still do that. I feel like that's kind of a lost art now because of COVID. You sit down, and obviously the first question you want to ask, and it almost comes out at the same time, is, so tell me a little bit more about yourself. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the people around you. How would you respond? Tell me about yourself. How would you respond? What are some things that you would tell this person that you're on a blind date with? Ready, set, go. All right, let's see. Uh, I hope that you guys had a minute to maybe... uh, Describe your answer, whatever it might be, of how you would describe yourself. Just to make a guess, here's what I, I would assume are some of the answers maybe you give. You might give what you do for your work, right? That's like the, what do you do is the, usually the first question. You might share where you live. You might share some of your personal preferences or hobbies. Like, I like blank. I like talking. Thank you, Melinda. That's good. Coffee. And coffee, that's good. So you might share some of your preferences. I'm guessing you don't respond and first say this, Hey, my name is my name's Charlie, who is the son of Vince Mio, who is the son of Charles Mio, who is the son of Carmelo Mio. Nice to meet you. Carmelo, right? Carmelo's a pretty cool name, right? I'm guessing you didn't respond like that. We're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus today, and I'm going to be really honest with you. When I see genealogies in the Bible, I literally just skip over them because they make no stinking sense to me. Like, why would you describe if you're trying to introduce somebody by who is the son of Vince Mio, who is the son of Charles Mio, who is the son of Carmelo Mio, and on and on and on? Why? We have to recognize here, before we look at the genealogy of Jesus this morning from Matthew 1, is that there's this huge cultural gap between us and the people of the Bible. For the last, and the question is why? For the last 300 years, there's been this gradual shift taking place, where for most of human history, how you identified, how you would share about yourself would be external identifiers. Where you're from, what family you're from core things about that external that aren't about what's inside. But over the last 300 years since the Enlightenment, 
we've moved from external identifiers to now simply internal identifiers. What's the truest thing about me is just what's inside or my preferences or the things that I love. Leslie Newbegin, who we reference a lot here as this church, at this church, he says this, which I think is really helpful as we think about the gap between us and the genealogy of Jesus. He says, attention is now concentrated on the self. Who am I? Who, the question being, who am I? To give the family name as been, has been customary in the past would identify the individual by reference to a history and a society. But listen to this. But this is not acceptable, he says. The self is an isolated monad which can only be understood from within itself. Thus, the inward journey becomes much more fascinating than the exploration of the external world. And psychiatry becomes the dominant element of society. Now, please hear me. This isn't a critique on psychology or counseling. We are a church that believes in both of those things wholeheartedly about what it looks like to explore who we are and what is our makeup from the family that we came from and our internal world. However, what he's trying to point out is that all the external identifiers of the family we come from particularly have been thrown off and we remake ourselves from wherever the place that we're in. Hence why when we come to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, it's hard for us to even understand why it's important. Hence why we skip it over if we're starting our gospel reading plan today in Matthew 1. You're probably going to just, most people probably just skip those first 17 verses and start with verse 18 because it seems like there's no significance to the genealogy. But there is. There is. And so today I want to explore that. Why should we spend a whole sermon on the genealogy? Think about for a moment your favorite commercial. Like a 15, it's probably a 15 to 30 second commercial. Most of you are probably like, I don't watch any TV, I just watch Netflix and scroll through Instagram. Well, just think about your favorite ad you've seen, okay? 15 to 30 seconds most likely. Have you ever thought about all the time that goes into making that 15 to 30 second ad? It takes hours and hours of film. The director puts together a, a storyboard, and then for hours and hours, maybe over a course of several days, they film and film and film, and you do the same take over and over and over again. And then at the end of the time, the director takes all that tape and hands it over to the editor and says, make something of it. Tell the story that I'm wanting to tell through all this raw footage that I've given you. The reason I bring this up is because if you go over to the Gospel of Luke and see Luke's genealogy, you're going to notice that the genealogy of Luke and the genealogy of Matthew are very different. Why is that? Well, imagine for a moment both Luke and Matthew being these master storytellers, these master editors that are trying to edit and shape a story and vision of who they want you to see Jesus as. And so what Matthew does here in his genealogy is he's editing a form of the genealogy to tell a specific story about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn again to the person next to you. This won't be about a blind date, I promise. And I want you to look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. You can read the names if you like or you can just look at them. Some of them are hard to pronounce. But Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. I want you to look at those names and I want you to answer this question. Find a name maybe that you're familiar with. Maybe a name that you recognize from uh, your understanding of God's story in the Bible. And then answer the question, why do you think Matthew includes that name here? What story is he trying to tell or what theme is he trying to bring up by bringing that particular person in focus when he tells the story of Jesus' genealogy? Okay? 
Find a name maybe that you recognize. If you're like, I don't recognize any of these names, get with someone next to you that maybe knows at least one of them and try to think, what kind of story is Matthew trying to tell through this genealogy? Ready, set, go. Let me hear from one of you or two of you. What's a name that sticks out to you and why do you think Matthew includes it in his genealogy of Jesus? What do you guys think? What did you see? What story is he trying to tell as this master editor? Yep. Speak for Hannah. Okay, good. Be careful what you're going to say right about now. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There's four women. If you guys didn't hear over here, there's four. He said the women that are mentioned in the genealogy. We're going to talk about that in a second. Absolutely. Matthew's trying to tell a specific story through mentioning those four women. Yes, Ryan. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan, for queuing up the first point I want to make this morning. I want to give you three insights, three things that this genealogy reveals that will shape, I think, our worship and our practice as God's people this fall and this week. It starts with that first verse. Jesus is the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. If you're a first century uh, Israelite and someone were to get up in the synagogue on that Saturday and start reading their genealogy and they mention these three names as how your lineage starts or they mention this title, Messiah, Abraham and David, you would have literally fallen out of your chair. Messiah, David, and Abraham. The first thing this genealogy reveals, that's been what we've been, as we've been going through the whole story of the Bible and getting to this point, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting as we've been journeying through the Bible of what's going to be the resolution of the story, is that in Jesus, this genealogy reveals that new creation has begun. New creation has begun. First, Messiah. It was a title, it was a hope, a promise and a hope that one day somebody would come that would reign as king forever and usher in the kingdom of God. He was the anointed one. This long promise now is being claimed on Jesus. He's the son of David. There was this promise in 2 Samuel 16 that from David's lineage, a king would reign forever and ever. His kingdom would have no end. And people were longing for this king. He's the true son of David. And then Abraham. It goes even further back in the story to Genesis 12 that through your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is not only the Messiah who is to come, but he's the fulfillment of the David promise to have a king reign forever. And even further back, he's the one who's going to bring blessing to all nations. Jesus reveals to us here, new creation has come. The kingdom has been ushered in. I'm going to give you three challenges this week and really for this fall, especially for this first one. If new creation has begun, we need to make a regular practice, a liturgy of reflecting of where we see the seeds of new creation in our everyday and weekly lives. And so I'd love for you to pull your phone out right now 
If you have it already maybe in front of you because you're scrolling through the Bible app, that's great, or through Instagram, one of the two. But pull it out. I'd love for you right now, and if you're married or you have somebody that you're living with in a house and you put different dates, that's fine. You can argue about it later. But I want you to put into your calendar a weekly practice this fall of how you as an individual or as a family or even as a missional community are going to reflect on the simple question, where in this past week have I seen the seeds of new creation in my midst? Where have I seen the kingdom of God break in? You can just put a title like uh, New Creation Reflection or something like that in your calendar. Maybe it's every Friday night or every Saturday night or every Sunday night or every Monday night, whatever it is, or a morning. But make a regular practice this fall of every week reflecting, looking back, and saying, where have I seen evidence of new creation in my midst? If Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham, something new has started. The Spirit has been given to us, and therefore I want to look back and reflect on where I've seen the seeds of new creation, new life, relationships reconciled, gifts of God's good creation enjoyed. Whatever that is, every week I want to reflect on where I see evidence of that in my life and the life of the family or the house that I'm in. New creation has come. Over the past uh, year and a half through the pandemic, uh, I'm not much of a, a show person in general. Keaton, that's one of her biggest critiques of me, is that I have to have a show that has some element of truth or reality in it. I can't just do straight fiction. I'm sorry, because there's some really good fiction out there. I understand. But I need some, tr- some sort of truth or some element of, of historical accuracy with it. Well, the one show that we've been trying to watch religiously all throughout the pandemic is the show The Crown, The Crown, which traces the lineage and the stories and the decades of Queen Elizabeth. When you get to season three, episode seven, they tell this really interesting story. Uh, If you know the story of um, Queen Elizabeth's father, King George VI, he took over for his brother who uh, dismissed his role as um, heir to the throne as king for the sake of a marriage that he wanted to pursue. And so once they made this shift and King George VI took over and then Queen Elizabeth, after her father died, became queen, what they began to do is, in a sense, wash out the impurity of the family line, of the genealogy. In episode, or season three, episode seven, uh, the queen's sister, Margaret, discovers that they have these relatives that have been put into this mental institution and hidden away from the world, and that even in the record books of the family, it says that they're deceased, and yet they're alive. And so Margaret freaks out and brings this news to her mom and says, why did we do this? She says, because when your father took over the throne, no one we, want, we wanted no one to question the purity of our line. We wanted no one to question that there might be some problems within the genes of our family that would put the whole monarchy in question. So they took these individuals who had a variety of mental or physical disabilities that were in the family line and they hid them away. Horrible story, right? You know what I love about the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew? Is he doesn't hide away the impurities of Jesus' line. He doesn't hide away the things that would bring scandal or shock. Those four women... One, women were never mentioned in genealogies. That's the first fact. Two, the four women that are mentioned are women that had quite a scandal or quite unorthodox way of making it into the genealogy. Two things I want you to notice. One, all four of these women 
had some form of an illegitimate birth or an unorthodox at best birth of, of their children. Tamar, go read the story in Genesis 38. I'm going to spare you the details here. It's, it's a story of, it's, it's disgusting, quite honestly. The failure of her father. She gives birth in the most unorthodox, illegitimate of ways to a child. Rahab, she was the prostitute that was in the walls of Jericho when they came tumbling down. Uh, uh, Ruth, Ruth fell asleep at the feet of Boaz in a really uh, unorthodox, maybe not the best way, and found favor with him that now is part of Jesus' line. And then, it doesn't even mention her name, but it says Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who was greedily taken by King David as he saw her from the top of his building. Illegitimate births, foreshadowing the reality in a second here that Mary's going to have an illegitimate birth. It's foreshadowing that the kingdom of God is going to break through in some of the most unorthodox of ways, a virgin birth. Second thing I want you to see, all four of these women were outsiders. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, married to Uriah, who was a Hittite, was a Hittite. All four women were outsiders, again, foreshadowing that the genealogy of Jesus is foreshadowing that one day all nations would be brought in. That not just it's going to happen in the future, but it already has been happening. That God already has been including these different women in his story that were outside the family of Israel. I want you to hear this, and I want this to shape our fall. That Jesus in this genealogy reveals to us that he often works in the most unorthodox or unexpected ways. Just in the silence of the space, now that we do have some real silence without the bugs, that they're going to probably start apart when we go into silence. Don't worry about that. But in the silence of the space, I want you just to pray, pray in your own heart for God to work and maybe to bring a mind an unorthodox or unexpected place or people you think he might want to do some work in this fall. That God's mission this fall might come through an unexpected place or people. See right now, if someone, someone or some place comes to mind, that God might be inviting you to step into this fall, as you see from the genealogy of Jesus. I started the sermon with saying my family line. Vince, my dad. Charles, which, that's who I'm named after, my grandfather. Carmelo, who I've never met, but his dad. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a thing called a genogram. But a genogram is something where you trace your family story and history, and it's really helpful in a lot of families of origin or when you're getting married and to like think about what are the two families that are coming together and what are the, some of the issues. And often what you find in a genogram is that often patterns are repeated, that if you have a history in your family of alcoholism, there's a good chance that you might be prone to that as well. What genograms reveal is this idea of generational sin, and what you see in Jesus' genealogy is a lot of generational sin from story to story passed down. In the early 1990s, when both of my parents who did not know Jesus, my dad through work got invited to this conference called Promise Keepers. That for most of you is like, some of you are like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. Some of you are like, I have no idea. Go look it up on YouTube of some of the Promise Keeper videos. Pretty good. A lot of men crying and hugging is really awesome. Anyways, he got invited to Promise Keepers. My dad got saved uh, through this Promise Keepers event. I think specifically with Greg Laurie, who's still doing events to this day. My dad got saved, and then my mom followed, and then my grandparents followed, and my kids now, 35 years later, get to experience Jesus and all of his goodness because my dad and my mom broke a pattern generationally in our family. 
And they started to follow Jesus, and now it's been passed on from generation to generation. The good news of Jesus' genealogy here is that as it begins now with Jesus, as he moves forward and gathers his disciples to himself, he breaks the patterns, histories, thousands of years of generational sin, and starts a new family and invites you to be part of it. This is my third challenge for you before I lead us to communion. This week, get with a trusted friend and maybe identify a pattern of generational sin you see in your family line. And pray together against it that your family, you as an individual, and the people that will come after you will be the ones that break it and start a new trajectory for your family, just as Jesus has broken the course of human history and the generational sin to start something entirely brand new. One, I want you to think through reflecting each week on seeds of new creation. Two, an unexpected place or people God might want to work through this fall. And three, to get with a trusted friend and to pray against and start a new pattern of generation, not generational sin, but generational blessing. If we're going to do that, it has to start here with the communion table. I'm going to invite the worship team and Chris and Sarah Hamilton to come up to the front. If we're going to participate in these three challenges this week, it starts here with the table. It starts here with the table. Jesus has inaugurated new creation through his death and resurrection. The seeds are already there. You just have to see them. Two, Jesus' death was the most unorthodox, unexpected place where God was going to pour out his redemption on the world, just like he'll do in unexpected places and people this fall through us. And three, Jesus has broken the patterns of generational sin that you and I carry, and he's offered us new life to be nourished by his body and his blood. So would you stand with me? I'm going to read from your handout what we read each week. And I'm going to invite you to the table. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so before you come to the table, would you recite the mystery of our faith? It's on your handout, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's say it together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Please come and take and eat.